Well, this morning, as you are aware, we come and celebrate three holidays converging all at once. Firstly, of course, the holiday that occurs each week as we come together on the Lord's Day. And as we do every week, celebrate the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord, his ascension, his sending of the Spirit, and the redemption that is found only in him. That is uh, our most important holiday is the people of God that he grants to us to celebrate each week on Sunday. But according to the liturgical calendar, we also celebrate today the second Sunday of Christmas, our uh, last opportunity to sing some of these wonderful and rich carols and, and to specifically consider the birth and infancy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I'm sure for many of you, uh, Christmas at this point, seven days later, is a distant memory. Uh, the, the decorations perhaps are somewhat put away. Um, uh, things are not in order in the garage, but they're kind of shoved in there around the leftover cardboard that wasn't able to be picked up in the trash this week. Uh, but, but those are pretty much the vestiges of Christmas for many of us. We have moved on to that third holiday that we celebrate this day. Happy New Year. 2023. It's January. We've just gotten used to writing 22, and now we will mess up the date again for another 11 months or so um, as it goes. A little interesting factoid about January. January was named after the Roman deity Janus in order to honor Janus, this Roman pagan god. So congratulations, you're uh, all pagans uh, as we celebrate the 1st of January today. But there is something interesting about Janus, especially if you've seen uh, images of him, oftentimes portrayed with two faces, one looking backward and another looking forward, which is fitting for January. He was the considered the god of endings and beginnings the God of of transitions. And that's what history has done at the beginning of the year. We we look back. We consider the year that has passed. We consider its victories, its failings. But perhaps more importantly, we look forward. We look forward specifically to how we might improve the next year. I mean, this will be the year that we make more and we weigh less This will be the year that we spend more time with our family, or perhaps we spend less time working. Perhaps this is the year where we finally learn Spanish, or take up the guitar, or our grades get better. Or maybe this is the year that we return to school or finally make that employment change that we've wanted to make for so long. But as one author writes, hiding beneath all these wishes and desires is the unceasing silent moan of our weary souls that we just want life to get better. In other words, we yearn for the advent of a better world where peace is the rule, where the rulers are just and where just and caring people surround us. So many of these New Year's resolutions really just unearth our inward desires for things just to be as they should be. And it's interesting that in an effort 
to move toward these good and just ends, we so quickly move on from Christmas, which is actually the holiday that celebrates the delivery of these good and just ends, to New Year's where we start to try to get them ourselves again. You know, this this is the season of New Year's resolutions. This is the season of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make your life better. It was just last week that we were hearing about the angelic announcements of good news and great joy for all peoples. A divine child that would fix all that is in ruin, whose reign and kingdom would know no end. A kingdom that does indeed bring a better life for all people. And yet here we are thinking about New Year's resolutions just a week later. Well, perhaps there's good reason for this. Perhaps this isn't just a malady of our own culture, but perhaps we see some trouble in the Christmas story itself that, that causes us to perhaps think that maybe we didn't get all that was supposed to come with Jesus. You know, it doesn't take long for us to realize after Christmas that the magic has faded away and life really just does return to normal. At least by sight, the realities that Christmas promises have not arrived. We live in a world that is ruled by Christ and yet a world that seems still so messed up, right? And we don't have to look far to see it. Well, what's interesting is as we read the scripture itself, we find that this isn't new to us. In fact, in our passage this morning, we find that just verses after we hear of the birth of Jesus Christ, the eternal king, this eternal king as an infant is on the run with someone trying to kill him. He's being exiled from his home and you're thinking, what, what happened to the angelic announcement? <laughs> the king is here. And, and now evil seems to be getting the upper hand. Just as soon as the boy is born of a virgin, the reader and the babe himself seem to be ricocheted back into the darkness of Advent. There's a lot going on in our passage this morning, but, but I, I want to consider over the next few moments, and as we Consider Christmas and consider this new year, what it is to live under Christ's rule in a world that does not seem like Christ is ruling. And I want to do so under three headings, first of which is the tale of two kings, the tale of two kings. One of the things that we find in Matthew's gospel that's interesting is almost simultaneously, we find the introduction of two kings of Israel. I mean, first, as we have been considering over the past weeks, we find the introduction of Jesus. By way of genealogy, if you'll remember two weeks ago, we thought about how Matthew's genealogy in chapter one shows forth that this is a child from the line of promise. But not only is he a child of promise, but if you look at this genealogy and the texts that come after, he's a royal child of promise. Matthew repeatedly draws attention to this reality. He calls Jesus the son of David, the king of the Jews, the ruler of Judah, who will shepherd all of Israel. 
Matthew's first chapters are dripping with royal language concerning Jesus. And if you add to this the the prophecies that he alludes to or the angelic announcements from the other gospels, this royal imagery is even further magnified, isn't it? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the prophet writes. Not only will he be king, but he will be an eternal king. He will rule over a kingdom that extends far beyond the borders of national Israel. As the angel tells Mary, he will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This baby is a king. But shortly after we're introduced to Jesus, the king in Matthew's gospel, we're introduced to another king, a king that plays a very prominent role in our passage this morning. If you look at chapter two, verse one, it picks up like this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, uh oh, behold, wise men from the east come to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Think about this for a minute. We've just gotten the introduction of Jesus as the king of the Jews. And then Matthew tells us there's another king reigning. And these wise men come to this king saying, where can we find the king? No, no, not you, the guy who's going to replace you. And Herod is not happy about this, is he? As we see this text unfolding, he has no interest in in handing over his throne. Now, for a little bit of historical context that Jesus is being born into, the Jews under this time are under Roman rule. And one of the things that made Rome such a successful empire is that they would use indigenous kings. That is to say, they would find people that were already in a certain area. They said, you can rule and and kind of keep most of the culture, maintain some of the religion, maintain the language. Just just send us our tax money every year. And, And this is a good way to keep order. So you'd have client kings. Herod would be one of these. He had some uh, lineage to the Jews. And yet, as we see from Herod, though he has connection to the Jews, he's not overly interested in propping up biblical prophecy. In fact, he has little interest in any project that might bring into question his kingship or authority. At this point, what we know of Herod is he's already had three of his sons killed uh, because they have threatened his authority. Uh, the Emperor Augustine said of Herod that it was be, would be better to be one of his pigs than one of his sons uh, because uh, Herod did not take lightly to people trying to uh, overthrow him or, or even give an illusion that that was to happen. Another interesting thing about Herod is that he's so concerned about his power and reputation that he wrote into his will an order that on the day of his death, a family member from every family be executed so that the whole nation would be in mourning. This is the kind of guy that we're, uh, we're working with here. Uh, this is a guy who's really concerned about his own position. 
And as we see, he is a guy who has no interest in a peaceful transfer of power to the new king of the Jews that was born in Bethlehem. And this is what brings us to our passage this morning. Verse 13, now when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Why? For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Matthew really does set up this tension between two rules, two reigning authorities. And it's a tension that we see throughout the scriptures. In fact, Genesis itself kind of sets up this idea of tracing two lines, the line of the seed of the woman, this line of promise, and the line of the seed of the serpent. This is the cosmic battle of old that we're seeing unfolding here at Christmas with King Herod looking for Jesus and Jesus on the run. Well, at first we see the tale of two kings. We, we then get a bit of a glimpse, secondly, into two ways to rule. Two ways to rule. If we look at Herod and consider some of the things we've already thought about, we, we can see him in, in many ways as a typical worldly king. The, the, the king that, uh, that in the Old Testament um, uh, Israel was, was warned about. No, no, you don't want a king like the kings of the nations. They will use you. They will abuse you. They will tax you. They won't shepherd you like God shepherds you. Uh, they'll use you just to maintain their power. And that's what we see here with Herod. He rules like the Gentiles. Like Jesus will later explain that the leaders of the Gentiles, what? They, they lord it over the people. And that's exactly what we see here of Herod. The people, in his case, are dispensable, even willing to make orders that they be put to death in an effort to keep his own power. They seem to be pawns to play in his political game. This is what we see in Herod. When a child is born who is to fulfill biblical prophecy, Herod tries to trick the wise men into handing over the location so that he can discreetly destroy this promised child. And as we see in our text, as this does not go as he had planned, what, what does he do? Well, he gives orders to have all of the infant males in a city be put to death. Herod rules like his father, the devil. He rules by seeking and killing and destroying. As Mark's gospel tells us that these client kings of Israel, Herod included, were not shepherds of God's people like God had intended for their king. But Jesus comes to sheep without a shepherd. For these Client kings were not ruling according to God's law or according to the needs of the people, but according to their own desires and needs. I mean, perhaps we can relate to this at least to some extent that oftentimes we become frustrated when we wonder if our own elected officials are really leading according to the will of the people or for the good of the people. 
We are often concerned that they're in it for their own power and prestige. We can discuss that at another time, but I think we have some common feelings about that in many ways. But this is not at all how Matthew introduces Jesus, is it? If we see there's a type of rule that Herod encompasses, that Herod looks like, we find a very different picture with King Jesus. Certainly the prophets, certainly the angels present Jesus as one who has great and ultimate authority. And so he does. But as he shows up in the gospel of Matthew, it certainly doesn't look that way, does it? There's no room in an inn. There's no extra pack and play to rest his head. We find the king of the world lying in a manger. In our passage, this this holy infant is then sent into exile. He's on the run. And it looks like he's losing. Sure, Herod dies, but then his son rises up and he's on the run again. It seems like his only hope is the ability of his father to rightly interpret dreams. Matthew says that Jesus can't even claim any geographic heritage of note. He's a lowly Nazarene. And and what good would come out of Nazareth? That would be the cultural thought about this nowhere place where Jesus has come from. Herod in this text is shown to be one with great power. At his very word, people are cut off. Jesus is shown to be one on the run. One that is weak and one that is lowly. And at very best, a very unlikely hero. Jesus is born to be like the people that he came to save. He looks like Israel. He looks like us. Matthew shows forth a king who can identify with the plight of his people. One that we read about in Isaiah this morning. One that the author to the Hebrew speaks about. That he was afflicted in all the ways that his own people were afflicted. Matthew shows forth a king who not only identifies with his people, but in some way envelops their very life. Especially if you look at Jesus' life in comparison to Israel's life. And and Matthew talks about this, doesn't he? First of all, this story of a promised child spared in the midst of an infant massacre should bring about some thoughts about the nation of Israel and Egypt, right? I mean, this is kind of familiar territory. But God took those people by the hand, didn't he? And he led them out of Egypt. He led them out of exile. The prophet Hosea Hosea speaks about this. He says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Which is interesting how Matthew uses it here. He says that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus seems to 
recapitulate and envelop the very life of his people, not only identifying with their plight, but taking on their plight in a very real sense. In fact, if you keep reading in the next chapter, you'll find that the next events in Jesus' life is that he's baptized and he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Well, just after the Exodus, after God had called his people out of Egypt, they are baptized in the parted Red Sea, as Paul tells us, and they go into the wilderness for 40 years. The difference being is that our Savior Jesus is faithful, faithful to the temptations where Israel was not. Jesus is made as the author of the Hebrews, as author of Hebrews tells us, to be like his brothers in every way, but without sin. He's the faithful Israel. This incarnate king not only takes to himself our situation, but envelops our very life in such a way that by faith his obedience becomes ours. That his perfect life lived is given to us, but this is only possible if he comes lowly, comes in the flesh and actually lives the life that we are called to live and grants it to us. He was born under the law, as Paul tells us, to redeem all of us who are found under the curse of that law. And he does so not by ruling from a distant throne, but by taking on human flesh so that we might be the sons of God that are called out of Egypt, called out of our bondage, called out of sin. Jesus is obedient in every way, even in our plight, even unto death on a cross. And this is how Jesus reigns. This is how Jesus brings about his kingdom. And it's one of the things that's so shocking about Jesus to the audience that receives him in the beginning and to the audience here today, that the way that he rules and reigns often looks like losing. This whole scene of Jesus being on the run, being put on the defense is actually how he is bringing about his kingdom. As Matthew explains, all of these events are according to the definite foreknowledge of God. They're fulfilling biblical prophecy. This is exactly how God wanted it to go down. And yet by sight, we look at it and say, it doesn't make sense. How can one bring about his kingdom in that way? It's not the kind of rule that we want, but it is the kind of rule that we need. The Christmas story of the miraculous birth of Christ is not an outlier in this humble rule. It is the very foundation of it. As one theologian quips, the crib and the cross are of the same wood. The same word become flesh to live among us is the word made flesh to die for us so that he ever might be with us, so that he might rule and reign in our hearts, so that he might rule and reign in the church. And yes, rule and reign to the ends of the earth. But in this time, Christ's humble birth, his exiled life, his criminal death tells us a lot about what his reign will look like. 
Evil will often look like it has the upper hand. People will die and justice will prevail. And the victorious Christian life will often look more like losing than winning. God does not promise participation trophies in this world. He does offer us a cross. And he advances his kingdom as we, just like his son, live as sojourners and exiles in this world. As we live the Christian life, which Calvin calls a constant death. So happy new year. Let's uh, pray. I'm kidding. What does this say to us now? What does this have for us now? Is there any encouragement in this text? I think, I think that there is. But before we move to that, I, I will say that I, I, think, I think it's easy for us at times to look to the cross, look to the cross of Christ and say, yes, there's victory there. But it is much harder for us to look at our own suffering and say there's victory there. And yet God is promising to bring about victory and life from our suffering, from our death. And so finally, I want to consider this this morning. Finally, the exodus to come. Look at verse 16 with me for a moment. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. January 1st uh, for us might come with a glimmer of, of hope, I hope that it does. I hope that it's a wonderful year. But for many of us, we will run into situations as the days and the weeks and the months unfold where there will be plenty of time for lament and weeping like Rachel. We will find that life on this side of Christ's return is difficult, just as Jesus promised that his rule and reign are manifested in very strange ways. And yet, if you look at this quotation in Jeremiah and continue to read, this is what you find. This coming right after Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah says this, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Rachel is weeping over the loss of her children because they have been dragged away into exile, an exile that the New Testament authors will talk about being a figurative death of the people. But the Lord speaks of a day when exodus will come for his people, when redemption will come, when deliverance from bondage will come. And these children will, will come home. A reality that ultimately speaks of this heavenly home that we all await for, this city whose builder and framer is God himself. This is a reality that speaks of, of resurrection. For believing Israel, 
For us who believe in Christ, I would argue for these infants that were massacred, those who are children of the promise. Resurrection is coming about. This passage certainly speaks of difficult realities at work against Jesus and his people. But it continually calls us back to this idea of exodus, of restoration. And even this somewhat depressing quote from Jeremiah, if you see it in context, even that is calling us back to a greater reality, to look to something greater. There is no exodus without exile. There is no resurrection without death. And I think the hope in this passage is found in the difficulty of it. That what seems to be defeat is how God is bringing about victory. And in the meantime, we have a shepherd who knows our plight. We have a shepherd who promises to never leave us or forsake us, who sympathizes with us. In lieu of demanding your personal adherence to his regime to gain access to his kingdom, it is his good pleasure to give you his kingdom. That's the kind of king and the kind of rule that we are under. A good and kind giving of the kingdom. But, but that giving unfolds slowly, doesn't it? It unfolds in ways that we don't see. But beloved, he who did not spare his own son will not leave you stranded this year. In the midst of difficulty, he will be with you. In fact, your suffering is often the ways that he is bringing his kingdom about I had the opportunity this week to uh, sit down with a, a father in the faith, and he was checking in on me and my life and asking about prayer. And I was saying, you know, it's, it's so difficult to have good patterns when you have small children and an infant. And he, he kindly, in so many words, saying, you know what, don't worry, the Lord will send you suffering, and that'll help your prayer life. But isn't it true? Isn't it true that the Lord often is using these difficulties in life to sanctify us, to make us more like his son, to make us more reliant on him? Other kings will continue to rise against King Jesus, just as Herod did. But Herod died. That's a good news hidden in the text. His son rose up. He died too. They'll continue to die they will continue to raise up a seed of the serpent. They'll all die too. For Jesus has the victory. And some days it will look like in this year that Jesus isn't winning. He's winning. He's winning. And he has won. Though your New Year's resolutions might be thwarted, know that he is using those failures for his glory and for your good. And he will not leave you. For what will rise from the ashes of defeat is a victory in which no eye has seen, no ear has heard, or the heart of man has ever imagined. And Jesus will be reigning on his throne, not for your improvement, but for your resurrection. And as we have heard from this pulpit before, there is nothing wrong with you or this world that a good resurrection can't fix. And that is our hope for this year. Come what may, 
Christ is on his throne. He is ruling as a kind and good king. God has sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, that we might be saved through him. And this year, as our resolutions are thwarted, may we continue to look to Christ by his spirit together as a church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.